Well, good morning, everyone. If you would take a copy of the Bible and open to the passage Patrick just read. My intention in starting my sermon this morning was to uh, do what is often done uh, when someone important is introduced. They say something like, this man needs no introduction. I was going to introduce myself, but after winning last night's neighborhood holiday light Christmas decoration prize, I assumed that word had reached you all and I needed now no introduction. Though you might be surprised that a man with such skill can actually preach a sermon. That's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning from Luke 23, verses 50 and following. Question for us. What do Christmas and Easter have in common? What does a manger have to do with a tomb? Now, Hugh will be handing out 25-cent Amazon gift cards in the back this morning if you said, Jesus, Sunday school prizes abound. If you said, however, Reese's Christmas trees that now go along with the delightful Reese's Christmas eggs or Reese's Easter eggs that have the exact right amount of chocolate to peanut butter ratio, you're getting closer to the truth of the answer to that question. All kidding aside, on the surface, Christmas and Easter have some basic commonalities. They're American holidays. They're breaks from work. For many of us, they're time with family and friends. For most of us, they're good food and a good nap. But under the surface, there's more commonality than you might pick up at first glance. Both Christmas and Easter are rooted in the Christian story. They testify to something central about the life of Jesus Christ. First, a celebration of the birth of Jesus, the one who we believe was the Son of God, sent from the Father to live a perfect life and to die a death in our place, such that sinners like you and I might be made right with a holy God. And the latter, a celebration of Jesus' victory over death, the marker of the day we heard Patrick read about just a moment ago, when Jesus would rise from the dead, proving that he was God and paving the way for our hope that we too will rise one day. But lurking beneath the surface of these two high-water marks of Jesus' life are some commonalities that Luke wants to draw our attention to this morning. Especially as we head into Christmas week, I want to use my time to show you from the passage that Patrick read three connective tissues or links between Christmas and Easter, and then invite you to do a bit of introspection for the implications for your life as well. Let's begin by rereading verse 50 of chapter 23. Three main ideas, three main connective tissues between Christmas and Easter. The first is introduced for us in verse 50, where we're introduced to another good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is where it's very helpful if you've been in the same church week after week and you're hearing the same string of sermons from the same biblical passage because you note some commonalities here. And if you've been with us in the previous weeks, you notice that once again, Luke introduces us to someone that seemingly comes out of nowhere, a character that hasn't shown up in the gospel up until this point, like Simon or Barabbas. He just appears on the scene. This is not Joseph, Jesus' father, but one who is introduced here as a member of the Sanhedrin. If 
you remember back a couple of weeks before, I, I told you that the Sanhedrin is a, a group of uh, decision-making elders in Jerusalem, specifically making decisions, rendering verdicts about temple practices, about the, the worship that would take place in the temple. And this one named Joseph does something remarkable at the end of chapter 23. He asks for Jesus' body. He takes it. He wraps it in fine linen. And he places it in a tomb. And Luke wants to draw our attention to the fact that this is a new tomb. It's an unused tomb. And this would have been a somewhat common practice for those who had been dead, for a loved one to, to take their body. But it does, this somewhat common practice, speak to the distance of Jesus' followers at this point in the story. It is not them who are asking Pilate for the body. None of them are seeking to bury Jesus but a random, obscure man from a seemingly unknown Judean town does. What's more important, though, than Joseph and his backstory is the motive that we're given in Luke 23 for why he does what he does. We get a hint of that in verse 51, again, if you'll look in your scriptures there, when we're told that he was opposed to what the Sanhedrin had done to the verdict that they had rendered, to what they had brought before Pilate, the decision to condemn Jesus. Now, Luke has earlier recorded that the vote was unanimous before this, of the Sanhedrin, so either Joseph abstained from the vote, or as would have been common, he was unable to get there at this time from the surrounding Judean village. Either way, It's clear from Luke that he does not agree with the verdict that his group has come to. It's pure speculation at this point, but perhaps Joseph believes. Perhaps he believes that Jesus was who he said he was. At minimum, the text tells us, he did not believe that Jesus should be punished for the wrongdoing that he was condemned of. But a more minimalistic answer doesn't actually make sense of what Luke tells us in the text because he one-ups this motive. It's not merely that he doesn't agree with what the Sanhedrin does, but look in verse 51. The text tells us after placing him, orienting him, that this is one who was looking forward to the kingdom of God. This is a motive clause behind the motive of not agreeing with what the Sanhedrin did Why did he do that? Because he was one who was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, as we read that language, it's unmissable how the connective tissue ties this story to the Christmas story. I actually want you to flip in your Bibles back to this scene to catch the contrast here in Luke 2. Go back to Luke 2. This was like 17 years ago when we were in Luke 2 to start this series. I'm just kidding. It's like 2 or something. But um, the introduction to Jesus' story. I want you to notice the connection and the link between the way Jesus first shows up on the scene. Luke 2, beginning in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem, and his name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. And he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. 
And so guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple, and when his parents brought the child to Jesus to perform what was customary in the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, and he praised God, and he said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. The introduction, the pacing, the language, even the adjectives that are used to describe these two men. Many of your translations are going to do the exact same two adjectives. Good, righteous, or devout are going to be the descriptions that are used. Simeon on the front end, Joseph on the back end. And what are they looking forward to in both cases? Israel's consolation, some of your translations in the Simeon story, looking forward to the consolation of the kingdom of God. Here at Jesus' birth and again at Jesus' death, his body is held by a man, a good, righteous, devout man who is looking forward to the kingdom of God. At his birth and at his death, his body is wrapped tightly in a cloth, unexpected dress for a king. And now at his death, his body is once again wrapped tightly, bound as a dead man. Those with eyes of hope, Simeon and Joseph, are able to take a baby's body and a dead body and embrace them with expectation because their hope is in the promises of God. To their current circumstances, with glorious optimism that God was at work to make all things new. First big idea for us this morning, Christmas and Easter are filled with hope for those who anticipate the kingdom. Christmas and Easter, for Simeon, for Joseph, you and I, are linked because they can be filled with hope for good, righteous, devout men and women who live with an anticipation for the kingdom, which demands a bit of introspection for us. Do you live, do I live with eyes of hope? Are we anticipatory people that are anxious for the way that God is going to make all things new? And, kind of parenthetically after that, in spite of what we can see, like babies and dead bodies don't invite anticipation. But those with eyes of hope can see beyond their immediate circumstances the basis of God's future promises. So we can illustrate this reality with a simple practice that many of us can relate to this time of year. You uh, know that in the evening you're going to go to a huge party, to a banquet, that's going to have way more food than you can eat, more than you can handle. So the question is, what does lunch look like for you that day? Well, if you're doing good, if you're a smart dude or lady here, you just get by, right? You don't sit down and gorge on a big meal. You scavenge, you snack, or you skip. In other words, we can endure the pains of hunger because we know that a feast awaits. We can plod through something that otherwise we'd like, man, I, I would probably avoid that. Probably wouldn't skip lunch. But I can plot through something that I would otherwise avoid because of the joy, because of the hope that is set before us. 
Well, there's difficulty applying this principle, right? Because it seems like, man, Matt, like that's a long wait. That's a lot of uh, deferred uh, uh, joy. I mean, if life is lunch and heaven is the feast, then I got a long time to wait. What kindness of God that he does more than tell us merely to wait, but he gives us glimpses, uh, appetizers of what's to come in this life. He allows us to taste of his goodness in this life in a way that whets our appetite for the coming feast. We await the consummation of his kindness in heaven as we taste of his goodness in this life. Which presses us to questions. Are you enjoying the goodness of God in the land of the living? Related question. Are you allowing the futility of this present life to whet your appetite for what's to come? Both appropriate presses. What do anticipatory people do? Next up. Christmas and Easter are both filled with joy for people who are given a supernatural word. I want you to hang on the language of this for a minute. We'll try to bring it full circle. Uh, Christmas and Easter are both filled with joy for those who are given a supernatural word. I want you to look in, in your text, and beginning in verse 54, we're introduced to a second group got Joseph firsthand. Uh, here we get a group of people. Their stories told in um, verse 54 all the way actually down through verse 11, and then they continue to play a role in what's fo- what follows. These are women that have been following Jesus for some time. Um, this mention, I uh, made this point last week, this is in contrast to what we saw in the previous passage with the daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, reference there. These are the, the devout women that have been following Jesus' ministry. They first show up on the scene in Luke 8. We're, we're introduced to them in this way after he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. And then also some women, and this is this group, who were healed of various sicknesses, evil spirits and sicknesses. Most recently, we've seen this group show up in verse 49, the previous passage. All those who knew him, including the women who had been following him from Galilee, they stood at a distance and they were watching these things. So what we have is a collection of women whose lives have been changed by Jesus. Uh, Luke 8 introduces them. Uh, One woman, seven demons have come. I mean, when seven demons come out of you, things change, right? Uh, uh, you, you, You give your life to following They're indebted to Jesus. But in the hierarchy of the day, they could really do little to influence the circumstances of what was playing out, so they stand at a distance and watch. They're attentive enough to watch where Jesus' body is placed, something that the disciples presumably do not do. They watch how his body is placed in a tomb, and then they return home to to prepare to anoint the body. Luke tells us that these are faithful women. I I think we could rightly use the same adjectives. They're good, faithful, devout women because they Sabbath on the Sabbath. They do what is required. And they awaken on Easter morning as women on a mission. However, the path to the tomb that morning is not marked by joyful optimism. There's nothing in the narrative to suggest that the women anticipate what's going to come. They don't go in a victory parade. 
but merely in a customary way of controlling the smell of a a decomposing body. Uh, A way of honoring the life of the deceased. We want to put some perfumes there so the body doesn't give off a smell. And you remember uh, Lazarus' death, right? This is the the fear. He's been dead for a number of days now and the body's decomposing. Far from optimism about the resurrection, the fact that the women bring these perfumes suggests that they anticipated finding a dead body there. They're going to anoint a dead, decomposing body in the tomb. Mark's gospel records the main question that they have kind of lurking behind as they show up in the tomb that morning in Mark 16. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? I mean, that's a pretty valid question, right? And it's a really valid question considering we're told in Luke's gospel that they've actually seen the body placed there. So they've seen the stone rolled in front of the tomb. So they show up asking, how are we going to get in to do what is here? It's surely an act of faith that they're going, but yet they they don't anticipate not finding a body there. Verse 2 records that the door to the tomb is open when they arrive. Pretty interesting. Uh, Perhaps the emotions that you might have if you got home today and you found the front door standing open. What happened? Who forgot to shut it? Maybe there's somebody inside. But what you're not anticipating in this story is a resurrected Christ. Now, I know none of you watch horror movies. That would be unbecoming of a group like this. Uh, But imagine if you did, and the classic fight scene goes down, and at the end, the villain lies presumably dead on the floor. And we watch the scene play out, or presuming that we would watch the scene play out, we presumably watch the scene play out, and you say in the back of your mind, that rascal's going to come back. He ain't dead, right? You know lurking in the back of your mind that death is not final. That is not how the world works. That's make-believe movies. People don't come back from the dead. You don't go to the tomb that morning expecting that. Their, resurre- their reaction to the stone being moved is not, oh, Jesus has resurrected. They're perplexed, Luke tells us. Presumably, the thought is that somebody's taken the body. They clearly don't think Jesus merely walked out. After all, they just witnessed him die a horrendous death. They knew it wasn't some kind of massive hoax. Jesus was dead, so if his body was gone, somebody had to take it. Or not. And I want you to notice how that or not shift takes place. Notice what God does in that moment of them being perplexed. He speaks. He gives his word. This is what takes place in verses 3 and following. He sends his messenger who declares his word. And that word is what changes the experience for these women. Again, it's impossible not to notice the parallels between this and the scene at Jesus' birth. Again, a group of weary, perplexed people, unsure of how or if God's going to come through. And into that gloom, God speaks. Luke 2, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news 
of great joy for all people. Weary, perplexed, fearful people, and God comes and he speaks. Both cases, the hearers are afraid. Rightly so. It's not every day that you chat with an angel, right? But even more than that, they're fearful and perplexed because the circumstances of their life are fearful and perplexing. This doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to add up. And in both cases, the front end of Jesus' life and on the back end of Jesus' life, an angel comes and announces good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born. He is not here. He is risen. Good news of great joy for all people. These are the bookends of Jesus' life. In our passage this week, the angel reminds them of Jesus' words. Notice this in verse 7. He doesn't merely announce vague, uh, he doesn't make up even new words. He points them back. Didn't Jesus say this would happen? Verse 7. This is exactly what he said was going to play out. Now, we're going to do a bit of fast forwarding because I won't have time next week to to do this, so I'm going to steal a little bit of my time from next week. Notice the parallelism here and what follows in Luke 24. We meet some travelers on the road, weary, perplexed, fearful travelers in Luke 24. What does Jesus, the resurrected Christ, do? How foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself and the scriptures. Fear, word of God, that points them to truth from God, that then orients their future. Later in Luke 24, verses 44 to 46, he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, comments on that next week, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and he will rise from the dead on the third day. God speaks into fear with the truth of his word. And notice finally in our text this morning, notice that good news from God puts good news of God on the lips of God's people. Good news from God puts good news of God on the lips of God's people. What do they do? They run back and tell the eleven. They witness to the truth of what is happening. This is what God has said. So, so here's, here's the way this plays out, Andrew, if you've got that, that kind of fourfold progression here. Yeah, so fear, God speaks, we get good news that produces joy that then bubbles over in witness, in good newsing the world around us. Fear, good news, joy, witness. It doesn't happen yet for the disciples in our text. They don't see. And this is the reason I've used the language of a supernatural word. Not merely that the word comes from God supernaturally, but it's not a word that they get to by their own natural aptitude. 
They don't meander their way to this truth. In fact, notice in verse 11, this is the way I've titled the sermon, the, the words actually seem like nonsense to them. As you think forward about uh, uh, Paul's writing, you know, the gospel is foolishness to those who do not believe. Seems like nonsense to secondhand hearers. More revelation is awaiting them. And the women also did not make sense of this truth apart from supernatural revelation that was declared to them that was right and true. So we're just singing, make my soul rejoice. How do you make a soul rejoice? You believe the truth about what God has said about himself. You don't get there on your own aptitude, your own wisdom. You don't get there through your circumstances. You get there by believing supernatural revelation. People who are rightly distraught by pain and futility in life, you're not going to make sense of your plight on the basis of natural wisdom or instincts. You won't get there on the basis of your insight or aptitude. The only hope for sustained joy is a supernatural word that declares to you truth that you would not otherwise believe were it not for the grace of God. Truth like there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Truth like Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and he's going to come again and get us and take us to himself. Truth like no one or nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Truth like those who he has saved, he will finally and fully glorify one day. Right? The list could go on and on. It's these supernatural promises that we read when we open our Bibles. It's the angel's declaration of good news, of great joy for you and for me. These angelic pronouncements reorient our desperation, right? So I know many of you, when you're asked to like uh, describe your pastors and you get to me, one of the first uh, words that come to mind is angelic, right? Uh, Matt's just an angelic dude. And, and while that might not be the term that you use to describe me, it, it, there is a very real sense that like when anybody stands behind this pulpit, we're, we're attempting to bring good news of great joy for all people in a way that, that lays truth on you in such a way that produces joy that you're not going to be able to manufacture on your own, right? You come, you hear good news, and the hope is that you leave literally encouraged, given courage. And then we do this when we speak the word of God to one another. We get to bring good news of great joy to re weary travelers when we speak God's word to them. So that I don't run out of time. We're not quite there yet. Uh, verse 12. Peter, this is the way the text ends. Uh, Peter gets up, runs to the tomb, stops, looks in, uh, saw linen cloths, went away, amazed at what had happened. Okay. So last verse. Uh, what's the however for in verse 12? Uh, the however seems to be in contrast to what we got in verse 11, right? There are those who responded to the women's words as nonsense. And in contrast to that, however, Peter does something different. Now, we've got to be really careful here that we don't attempt to make truth claims on the basis of reading motives into the passage that aren't there. Luke does not tell us in verse 12 that Peter believed at this point. In fact, 
um, John with no little with no loss of irony after he recounts the foot racing scene to the tomb, you know, where he wins and Peter comes in second place. He ends that in verse 9. This is John 20, verse 9. They did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So what we have in Luke 24, 12 is zeal, not yet full belief. It's wonder, not worship. But it's more than the other disciples are doing. And I think it's appropriate to suggest that Peter is optimistically hopeful that God is up to something. Perhaps the way that you with little kids will experience Christmas Eve. Uh, An optimistic hope that there's something happening beyond what I can see. He left amazed, not yet convinced, Not yet fully informed, but amazed. Much like some weary shepherds a few years earlier who returned, Luke 2, verse 20, returned glorifying and praising God at all they had seen and heard, which was just as they had been told. Shepherds who were given a glimpse of the glory of God and a baby in a manger. Not the full revelation, not fully understanding everything that would transpire, but amazed that God was up to something beyond what they could see. And it's worth noting for our purposes this morning that God once again meets Peter. He turns wonder into worship. He takes broad sweeping amazement and transforms that into faith. How does he do it? Luke doesn't tell us, so John's going to tell us. When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Then shepherd my sheep. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had to be asked a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. It's the resurrection that transforms wonder into worship. Peter meets the risen Jesus, and he believes. And such belief springs to life in his life in such a way that he plays the lead character role in the first 12 chapters of the second half of this book that we're reading, the book of Acts. As Peter steps to the forefront on the scene, the one who is just denied and says in Acts 2, 22, in the sermon that will be the springboard for the foundation of the early church. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up ending the pains of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Imagine that. A three-time denier, three times restored, 
and used by God to bring good news of great joy to all peoples. Christmas and Easter are also filled with worship for those who stand amazed at what God has done. That like Peter's glimpse into the tomb, we also glimpse into the counsel of God's plan from ages past. And we see in that counsel of God from ages past the story of how he would save sinners and make them right with the holy God in ways that Peter surely could not fully grasp in this moment. God was at work to restore humanity to a right relationship with the Father. And if you are a child of God, saved by faith in Jesus Christ, then Peter's story is your story. It's the story of God taking your busted past, your youthful zeal, your complexity, your pain, and intersecting that story with his grace. You, Christian, are a living intersection of Christmas and Easter, testifying that he was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And if you are not yet a child of God, you can be. In the same way that a meal con contains an invitation, so too the meal that we will soon receive contains an invitation. Hey kids, dinner's ready, come. Hey, we'd love to have you over for a meal at our house. This meal also is an invitation, but it's not an invitation for me. It's an invitation from God. And it's not an invitation merely to eat physical bread or to drink this tiny cup. It's an invitation to take the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, to have one who would satisfy the recesses of your soul to admit your sin before a holy God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect work to forgive your sin and give you right standing before a holy God. It's no wonder that Jesus breaks bread and eats with Peter. He gives him eyes to see. This Christmas, you too can be raised to walk in newness of life. And link your Christmas, your Christmas celebration up with Easter worship. Father, we give you that in the midst of uh, a weary, you can bring rejoicing. And we thank you that the pressure is off. We don't have to manufacture that on our own. Uh, we don't have to manipulate circumstances and people uh, to manufacture joy and hope and optimism. But we can believe you. We can believe what you have said about yourself. And as you have been so kind to give us your supernatural word that tells us what is, what is actually true, we pray that you would 
help our weary souls to rejoice. And for those who live under the ever-present weight of the burden of their sin, might you in your great kindness grant them the gift of salvation through Christ? Would you open their eyes to see the finished work of Jesus and the hope that only he can give? And this Christmas, would a resurrected Jesus prompt wonder and worship in us all? We ask for the sake of Christ. Amen. We're going to invite the servers now to come and